not from there. Not that from there. Church because the 
church is the only thing saved out of this world. Would you lift up your hands and voices? Worship the Lord with this one. All the time. Oh, Lord, we love you. Oh, there's nobody like you. There is no cause of you, Jesus. We lift up your holy name. We give you glory. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen the church tonight. Lord, the church in this building and in this assembly and in all the earth. Lord, we are your precious God. Lord, prepare us for Lord, make us stronger in the church tonight. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Amen. So glad that you were in the house of the Lord tonight. And last week, in the half of the lesson that we were able to get through, we, we talked about two things. And one's one I've already been rambling on about. It's the church that Jesus created. That's the only reason there is a church. There's not a church here because somebody just decided there needed to be a church in the building and somewhere to keep people out of trouble. There's a church here because Jesus died to make one. Jesus gave his life and resurrected himself from the grave so that he could create the church. He gave his life to create the church and it is the body of Christ. The call out assembly of people who follow him and members of his body are in covenant with God and with each other. If you want to see Jesus, you're going to have to see me. If I want to see heaven, I'm going to have to go there with you because we are in a covenant relationship both with God and with each other. You don't get one without the other. Nobody ought to go on thinking I'm going to make it to heaven without the church. If you're not right with the church, you're not right with God. Because the church is his bride. And that's the only thing he's coming back for. Is to take his bride home to be with him. And so it is of the utmost importance that the church, the body of Christ, live in unity. We are to live in unity. But the church is made up of humans. People like you and I that are flawed and in need of grace. And even though the Lord has transformed our lives, we still have conflict. We still have hurt. But God intends His church to pursue peace and unity. It's not their problem. And it's not your problem. It's our problem. And we've got to get it right. And we've got to get it right the way that the Lord says that we ought to. Now, sometimes, we talked very briefly about this last week, but sometimes unity is a word or a theme that is used in all honesty to sow some false doctrine and compromise in the church. Because there are those that will stand up and say we've got to have unity at any cost, which means if it offends in any way, if it causes somebody to be uncomfortable in any way, if there's anything that's going to divide us at all, we've just got to get rid of it. Now, that's true about some things, but the thing that unifies us is the truth. There wouldn't be a church without Jesus, and Jesus is the truth. He's the way, he's the truth, and he is the life. And so we can't fall into that deception of the enemy because a lot of times the enemy, you know, wraps things up and makes it look like it's a good idea, make like it's something that's godly. But unity is not a reason to let down the standard. Unity is a reason to raise it up. 
compromise, unity is reason to be stronger because it's, it's the word, it's the truth that binds us together. I read something a long time ago, I, I probably mentioned it half a dozen times in preaching, but it was a very profound statement, and, and I can't even remember who it was that made the statement. But they, they said, do you realize that a that hundred pianos, or ten pianos, or a thousand pianos, tuned to the same fork, are all tuned with each other? The one instrument, the tuning fork, if every instrument's in line with, the, with, with, with that tuning fork, then they're all in line with each other. If we all get in line with God, if we all get right with the Lord, if we all give Him the book, if we walk in truth, we will be unified. We will be in one body, Christ. And so, there are different things that we do all the time to maintain unity. We, we do it by being together, which is why the scripture in more than one way, more than one place tells us that we're supposed to be together. It even says that as you see the last day approaching, you need to be together more. Why, why would the scripture say that? Because the devil knows what a unified church does. Yes, and he does everything imaginable yes. to try and, and break it apart. Yes. We've just come through a pandemic. And I'm going to tell you, it didn't do any favors for church unity. Not here, not anywhere. It caused all sorts of division, all sorts of hard feelings, even between churches. That's not what God wants. That's what the enemy wants. We are to strive for it in everything we do. And, and one of the things that we do is we, we, are, we get together. We stay together. We also pray. When we pray and get in touch with the Lord, then, of course, again, that's that tuning fork. It's going to get all in line with each other. We also get in the Word of God. We all believe the same thing and live the same thing. Then we're going to have a much you know, easier time not getting in conflict with one another. But then last but not least, we've talked about this kind of length, is that we deal with our conflicts and our disagreements and our differences the way that God said to do it. Not the way that man says to do it. Man and our flesh, which is man, tells us we're supposed to, you know, don't get everybody else on our side and now the case. And our flesh tells us we're supposed to just die on that hill of being right and, and being correct and being the one that's offended that needs to have somebody come and reconcile to me. Our flesh tells us that You've got to get what's best for you out of the whole situation. When the Bible says, get it right with your brother and your sister. Yes. Go to them. Yes. Go to them alone. Yeah. And make it right. Keep everybody else out of it. If that doesn't work, take one or two spiritual people with you and try to get it right. And then only if you can't get it right then does it become a church thing. And then the church comes together and brings the power of the unified church to bear against the sin to make things right. And then if none of that don't work, well, probably not much else we can do. Just keep on letting God work on it. But I'll tell you, most of the time, we never find that out. Because it's very rare that anybody ever does what those scriptures say to do. And we wonder why we, you know, we want to choke each other sometimes. It's because we're not doing things the way God said to. And if we do that, then God will work through it and his authority would be in there and he would heal much more often than our, you know, putting our band-aid on our big toe approach when our fingers cut. Yeah. That's what you remember that. Now and forever. And you can't heal a cut finger like a band-aid on a big toe. 
So tonight we're going to, to move on to the latter half of the lesson. And in addition, there's something else that God gives us to be unified. There's something else that he gives us besides assembling together, besides coming together for corporate worship, besides praying and spending time with the Lord, besides being in your Bible and knowing and learning and walking in truth, and besides handling conflict in the way that he prescribes that we ought to handle it. He also gives us the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit. This is number three in your book. The statement that begins that section says, God gives His church gifts of the Spirit for ministry. And when people in the body of Christ yield to the move of His Spirit, these gifts operate supernaturally to help the church. And we're going to read a good bit of scripture about these things. If you go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, there's a few more places I'm going to go, but not many. Most of them will be right there in that part of Corinthians. So again, you can keep your bookmark right there and you'll be all right. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 1, that this whole chapter really is dedicated to this topic. Chapter verse 1 says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that you were Gentiles, carried away under these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord, but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit, that's the gifts of the Spirit, is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given the, by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing of the same Spirit. You want to know it's the same Spirit by now. To another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these, every single one of them, worketh that one and self-same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. So, first question is, what is the source of these gifts and ministries? Where they come from? They come from the Spirit. They come in, he, he said it more times than you probably need to hear it, but, but he going to make sure you don't forget it. All of the gifts of the Spirit come from the Holy Ghost. They come from the Spirit of God. And who profits from the gifts? Right. The scripture says every man, but he's writing this to the church. So the ones that profit from the gifts of the Spirit are the church. You and I. This is a, a highly important point to realize about the gifts of the Spirit. Their purpose.
here comes to church and the gifts of the Spirit start to operate, they're going to be affected. They're going to take notice. But the gifts of the Spirit are not there to impress them. And not there to make them think that we're these super spiritual people that, that nobody else is. God gives these gifts to edify, to strengthen, to unify the church. Very simply put, these, these are the words of Jeremy Causey. The gifts of the Spirit is the operation of the Holy Ghost through the lives of believers to maintain unity and build strength in the church. That's what they are. It's the same Spirit. It's the same Holy Ghost that, that you spoke with a long time ago on an altar, and I hope you speak to every day of your life. That same Spirit that caused you to speak in an unknown tongue so you know that the Lord was in there. That same Holy Ghost, if we yield to it, these gifts are there to unify and strengthen and edify the church. Now, another important note about the gifts of the Spirit, they are different from the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I know most of you have been around for a while, so you've heard me teach on both of these things, and you'll just have to cut up a little bit of it tonight, but, but they're two different things. Gifts are not evidence of spiritual maturity. They're gifts. Your children, when they're six years old, don't have not earned the things that you give them at Christmas time. Now, I know your baby did, but nobody else did. Maybe they were good for the two and a half days before Christmas because they, you know, they knew they might, father might take a gift back or something. I don't know what you might threaten me. I won't recommend it, but. Whatever the cause may be. We don't believe it's that cause in this church, so I, I don't really expect it to come from there. They don't want the daddy pay for them. They want to make sure there's something good under there. They didn't really spend all year earning it. We gave them gifts because we love them, because we want to make them happy and give them something that brings them, that brings them happiness. That's why they got the gift. Not because they worked for six months and I was giving them a paycheck in return for their labors. It was a Gift. That's what the gifts of the Spirit are. They are gifts from God. They don't speak to the maturity and the spirituality and the holiness of the one being used for the gift. They speak of the spirituality and the holiness and the goodness of the one that gave the gift. But they're different from fruit because fruit is evidence of spiritual maturity. If you don't have spiritual fruit, you're not growing. Somebody can speak in tongues all day long, but if their life never, ever changes. I'm not talking about being in perfection on this side of heaven. We're all going to stumble and fail and make mistakes. But if they're in the same place today they were 25 years ago, sometimes I question what spirit they got. Now, I can't see their heart. I don't know what's down in their soul. But I do know that the Word tells me that there's going to be fruit on the branches at some point. That the Holy Ghost is in our soul. Gifts show the goodness of the giver. They show the goodness of the giver, not necessarily the one being used in the gift. 
Now, this sometimes it's confusing to folks, sometimes it is disheartening to folks, but it's reality. And we see it not just in our own time, but here even in the scriptures. If you just flip back a few pages in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, you'll see in verse 4, and it's kind of the opening, opening paragraphs of Paul's letter, he writes, says, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ is confirmed in you, so that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he's writing here to the church in Corinth, and he's basically admitting that the testimony of God is confirmed in them, that spiritual gifts are in operation in them. In fact, when you get back to 12 and 13, that's really what he's talking about, is making sure they get them right. So the only reason he's got to correct some issues with it is because the gifts are there. Because there was prophecy, because there was tongues and interpretation, and there was healings and miracles. He said, you're not lacking in any of these things. And yet you only have to read a few chapters of the book of Corinthians to find out they were in a mess. They had false doctrine, they had church discipline problems, they had all kinds of junk going on in the midst of them, and yet at the same time, in the middle of all that stuff, God was still using them in the gifts of the Spirit. But fruit is not that way. Matthew 7 and 16, Jesus himself said, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. If somebody is using the gifts of the Spirit, thank God for it. Be thankful that God moved to edify and to strengthen the church. But if you want to know if they're growing in God or not, just hold on and watch the branches of their life. And if they're filled with the same Holy Ghost that you are, and they're growing in the grace of God, they're going to bear fruit. Now, you know, don't get bit out of shape when their tomatoes are this big and you think yours are this big. Just be thankful there's fruit. Well, let's celebrate progress and not perfection because right the total of some of us know anything. So we're not perfect on this side of heaven. But this is a very important thing to understand because a lot of people have been deceived otherwise. And they've been deceived into feeling that spiritual gifts mean God's acceptance. Well, I know they live this way. I know they do these things. I've seen them at work. I've seen them down in the street corner. I've seen them at the store. And I know everything in their life is not right. But then God spoke through them in tongues and interpretation the other night. That must mean God's okay with it. No way. That don't make right what they're doing. And if they don't get things right with God, they're going to bear some judgment for letting God work through them and living the ungodly life that they're living. But there are times that that confuses people. They don't understand how did God work through this because God is not doing it for them. He's doing it for the church. He's using them as an instrument to edify the church. And unfortunately, most of us probably have a story to tell of somebody in our life 
that was used in the gifts and was that there was some stuff that wasn't quite right in their life. But God still at times ministers through imperfect people to build up his church. So be careful and don't get too big for your bridges and remember that God's love you or not. So what are the gifts? And Paul enumerated them, or he, he spelled them out, and, and I would add to this, and I know some of you have heard me say this before, because I, I heard it, read, read it, and heard it said from others as well, that we also need to be careful when we start chopping up and dividing the gifts of the Spirit, because although God gives us revelation in many things, and, and He's not really hiding things from us, our human minds can only... We can only grasp so much. I mean, we, we can't fully understand the fullness of all that God is until we get on the other side of glory. And a lot of times as humans, because, you know, we like to put things in boxes and make sure we understand them, we, we want to say, well, it's this gift and it's that gift. And sometimes you get in trouble drawing lines. God can do whatever he wants, whatever he wants, however he wants. Whether I figure out exactly what little bucket it fits into or not. But, but Paul begins to lay these things out so that they would understand the differences by which God does work through the church. And so I'm, gonna, I'm not going to spend much time on these. I'm going to briefly talk about what they are. Uh, the word of wisdom is the first one mentioned, and that is when God gives someone wisdom for a situation that only God can give them. And some of you, maybe you've been used to this before. Maybe somebody else has been used for you. You just didn't know what to do. You didn't know what to use action. And God gave someone wisdom to benefit you or to benefit the church. It could be a decision the whole church had to make. That's what the word of wisdom is. It's knowing the course to take because the Holy Ghost led you to, to say that and to know that. It's kind of similar, but it's not the same as the word of knowledge, which is information being made known to you by the Holy Ghost that you can only know because the Holy Ghost told you. Now, some of you are old enough to, to, to remember the, the Brother Conway who would come around. I was a kid when he came around, so that means that you came with Jason for kids, and some of y'all were kids, so Eric and old so it's all right. But many of you remember him coming around, and he was very often used in this gift of the Spirit, where he would call you up to pray for you, and he would begin to tell you things that there's no way, no human way he could have known unless God told him. Now, sometimes it's stuff that somebody could know, but that person just doesn't know. Sometimes it's things that nobody can know. I, you may have heard it, that gift in operation before where someone says, there's a cancer in your body. Nobody can look at the outside of you and tell that. I know they can do scans and figure it out, but until they do that, the Holy Ghost is what led that person to, to have that information so that you can be blessed or benefited in some way. The next one is the discerning of spirits. If y'all ever want to pray for me, pray that the Lord would give you this one. This is being able to understand or realize what it is you're dealing with, what spirit it is, whether it's a good spirit, something comes from the spirit of God, whether it's an evil spirit, or whether it's a human spirit. You know, sometimes we give the devil too much credit. Sometimes it's just human foolishness causing the situation, and not the devil. And so that's what that gift is all about. It's understanding what it is that you're dealing with. Uh, the next one is the gift of 
faith, which is someone having faith in a particular moment, in a particular situation, faith that goes beyond the ordinary. You've got to remember, the scripture tells us that he's given to every man the measure of faith. All of us have faith. You wouldn't have come to God without faith. You couldn't have come to God without faith. Everyone comes to God through the gift of faith that He gives to them. So everybody's got some faith. But there's times it's going to take serving. There's times that it's going to take just unswerving confidence that God's about to do something. God's going to heal, God's going to perform a miracle, God's going to talk to water, going to see, whatever it may be. That's what the gift of faith is. That you go beyond the shadow of the doubt, God's about to do it. It's going to happen. And then there's the gift of healings and miracles. They're very similar, but a little bit different, simply because healings generally occur gradually. They, they have a tendency to occur over time. Our bodies heal themselves naturally. When they function properly, when they're healthy, turn some things we don't heal from sometimes come upon our body, and we need supernatural help, and that's what healing is. Uh, sometimes people have been used for very specific healings. You may have heard stories over the years of God using a man or a woman to pray for people to have babies, and people would come from all over because they wanted to have a baby. And, you know, eight times out of ten, the people that went up and prayed a lot, nine months later, were having babies, and so. For whatever reason, God just chose to do that and to put that gift in someone uh, to, to pray for that particular move in their body. Uh, miracles are things that occur in multitudes. They occur beyond scientific explanation. You know, it, it's not that you had, you know, your finger was bleeding and you put the band-aid on there and in two days it all healed up. This is, it was bleeding five seconds ago and now it's not. This is, you know, the tumor that's been on your head and is inoperable for years has now just fallen off of your hand. It's when you go to the doctor and he says the cancer is going to kill you and you're going to be gone in a month. And six months later, he's looking at you going, I have no idea what happened, but it's gone. That is a miracle. And the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy does not necessarily mean someone is a prophet. A prophet is part of Bible ministry. They have have a leadership responsibility in the ministry of the church. People that aren't necessarily prophets can be used in the gifts of prophecy. But the gift of prophecy is basically speaking for God. Now, oftentimes we see this or hear this as somebody predicting the future. Uh, this is going to happen tomorrow, and then tomorrow it happens. And that is also how God uses that gift, how God speaks through people. But it's not necessarily just something that's going to happen in the future. Sometimes it's speaking right there in the moment what God would have to be said. There's a lot of times that you know, God stands in pulpits and in the middle of a message, God puts that gift out upon their lips. And what they're speaking is not just reciting the word of God, but they're speaking to you from that very moment right now to go down to their altar. You might not see tomorrow. It's speaking for God. And then there's tongues and interpretation of tongues. And I know you all know this, but, but the gift of tongues is different from the evidence of speaking in other tongues <coughs> as the Spirit of God gives you the others. The evidence that, that when you got it the first time you spoke in tongues and, and depending on how often you speak in tongues and prayer, you continue to do that when you pray and you worship God. That's not what this gift is about. This gift is, is a little bit different. Sometimes this gift is used to speak.
testimonies of people sitting in a, in a church. They're all in their corner praising God, speaking in tongues. They don't know what they're talking about. And somebody walked in after church and said, have you ever been to Rwanda? What? And then they look, I mean, we, you, some of you have heard these stories. You were speaking in the language that's spoken in my village, telling that me that people that I needed to repent of my sins. That's the gift of tongues. Now, you, you didn't know how to speak that tongue. You can learn other languages. That's not a spiritual gift. That's just discipline and, and, and study and education. But what God does it through the Holy Ghost, that's the gift of tongues. Now, sometimes it's nobody's language. Maybe it's somebody's language, but it's nobody that you know. It's either somebody that's nowhere around there speaks that language, or maybe it's just a heavenly language. So to, to no one that's in the building or around you, nobody has any idea what it means. And so almost always it is coupled with the gift of the interpretation. Sometimes because Paul writes about it in another place, it, it's really not valuable if it's not interpreted. It, it may benefit you because you were in the spirit and the Lord was, was speaking through you and it blessed you and it benefited you. That's a good thing. But it only benefits the church, which is what the gift is for, the edifying of the church. It only benefits them if it is interpreted. And so when there's times in, 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 in services, and I believe all of you have been in those services at some point in time in your life, you, you just know that's what somebody's doing. you got 15 people worshiping God, and they're all speaking in tongues. But, and I really can't even put my finger on it to explain it, but somebody else starts speaking in tongues, and all of those with the Holy Ghost, they just know. It's like a hush begins to fall over the congregation, and everybody's just standing there listening to Sister So-and-So speaking in tongues. Why are we doing that? Because the Holy Ghost is telling us to hush. But once that's done... The intention of the objective is for it to be interpreted. And so if it is not being interpreted, we're supposed to pray for that. And then, of course, if it happens two or three times and it's never interpreted, then that person just wants to stop doing it. You can't spell all the confusion at that point. It doesn't make sense to anybody as to why it's not being interpreted. So here's what we're interesting about. I didn't really thought about this until I read it. I just thought it was, thought it was something neat to read. That tongues plus interpretation of tongues equals prophecy. When a message comes from God, and then it is interpreted in a way that we can understand what God says, it becomes prophecy. So, I just thought that. Amen. So, how do all of these things ensure unity? How do they have, what do they have anything to do with unity of the church, which is kind of what we're talking about in this section? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, back to where we started. Verse 12 says, For as the body is one, and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit, anybody confused about how many spirits there are in By one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So it's reinforcing this whole idea. This, we're in the same chapter. We're talking about the same thing here. The differences of administration of the gifts all come from the same Spirit of God. They all come from the same Spirit of God, which means something. He was very clear. Every one of these things he's talking about from the same Spirit, the same Spirit, the same Spirit. And then we get down here and he says, oh, by the way, we're all baptized into the one Spirit. 
So, this means that the gifts of the Spirit cannot contradict each other. They can't. It's impossible because they all came from the same Spirit. Our God is not bipolar. Our God does not have multiple personalities. Our God certainly does not have multiple persons in some thing called the Trinity. We serve one God. There is one Spirit of God, and that is what operates all these gifts. So it is impossible for them to contradict one another. If they do, or if somebody thinks that they do, it's because somebody's not acting according to the Spirit. These gifts will always operate in perfect harmony, which brings unity to the church. There is no confusion. There is no division. There is no misinterpretation. God spoke in three different ways and he said the same thing every time. And it brings us together. The next verse says, and this verse seems kind of funny, but he's still making the same point. If the foot shall say, because I'm not the hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear shall say, because I'm not the eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? The whole body were an eye, where were the hearing? The whole were hearing, where were the smelling? But now hath God set the members, every one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. And if they were all one member, where were the body? But now are they many members, yet but one body? And then he says, and the eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Nay, much more, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. For our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked, that there should be. No schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members in particular. You and I do not know what we need when we need. The saints already told you. We don't know nothing. We think we know what we need. We think we know what to pray for. And the longer you serve God's word, you realize you don't know. We don't know what we need when we need it. All we see are things that are on the outside. We see the comely things. We see the one that sings the best. We hear the one that preaches the best. We see the one that has the most eloquent testimony. When many times it is that quiet saint in the corner of the prayer room that is going to make the difference as to whether you live to see tomorrow or not. Because God is using them to minister to you. God uses these gifts to do exactly what needs to be done in the body at all times. And the gifts are always subject to divine order as outlined in scripture as well and he goes on in verse 28 says that god hath set some of the church first apostles secondarily prophets thirdly teachers after that miracles then gifts of healing helps and governments and diversities of times he says are all apostles are all prophets are all teachers are all workers of miracles have all the gifts of healing do all speak with tongues 
do all interpreting. Now, I didn't come to give a lesson on the fivefold history uh, or the order of how all the gifts operate. You can read those in the later chapters. But it suffices to say that the gifts of the Spirit flow in the same divine order that God has established in the church. What does that mean? That means if your pastor has spoken into your life, then you better not be following somebody else's prophecy that don't line up with what he's spoken in your life. We live in a world where everybody chases every voice under the sun. And the truth of the matter is, what we're normally looking for and the voice we're normally seeking after is whichever one is saying what we want to hear. And I'm going to tell you, whether it's somebody that's not quite interpreting the Holy Ghost right, or whether it's somebody the devil just puts in your path, if you keep seeking, and you keep getting out of the divine order of things in the church, you're eventually going to find somebody that's going to sound off a lot like the spirit you're trying to listen to, that's going to tell you what you want to hear, and you're going to go straight. Because the gifts of the Spirit are never going to put division between you and your pastor. They're not going to put division between the pastor and the evangelist. They're not going to put division between the saint on this side and the saint on that side, because their only purpose is to unify and to edify the church. They're subject to ministry, to authority, and they're subject to the Word of God in every way. But there's one more scripture in this chapter. One more before he kind of turns the topic. He really doesn't, but it's going to sound like he's turning the topic. There's one more scripture. In verse 31, he says, But covet earnestly the best gifts. This says it is not a bad thing for you to want the Lord to use you in the gifts of the Spirit. I want the Lord to use you in the gifts of the Spirit. I want the Lord to use me in the gifts of the Spirit. If it would so please Him, I just assume He let He use me in all of them. He's probably not going to do it that way. But whichever way He wants to use me, I want to be used with God. Paul said, covet earnestly the best gifts. If they're not in operation, if they're not flowing like they should in the church, we need to be praying about them. If we can't remember the last time there's tongues and interpretation, we can't remember the last time somebody got healed, we need to be praying about it. But then Paul says, And yet show up unto you a more excellent way. <laughs> that there is something greater than tongues and interpretation, taking prophecy, and knowledge, and wisdom, and healings, and miracles, and discerning of spirits. Because there's something that rises to a level of spirituality that rises to a level of, of being desired of God in us more so than every single one of those gifts put together. And he tells us in the very next chapter what it is. Chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity. Now this word as we read it tonight, every time you see charity, replace it with love. It's not that it's the wrong word, that's just the meaning of what this word is. It means love. So though I speak with the tongues of men and angels and have not charity, I have become as a sounding brass for the tinkling symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains and have not charity, I'm nothing. 
Though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity, love, suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. A handful of verses later, verse 13 says, And now, abide in faith, and hope, and charity, these three, but the greatest of these, charity. The greatest of all of these things, every gift of the Spirit, faith, and hope, greater than all of those things, is love. So what does not have love make you? It makes you nothing. Not spiritual, not godly, not heaven bound. I don't care how correct your theology might be. It don't matter how many Bible studies you've given. It doesn't matter how much you pay the tithing offering. If you don't have love, you have nothing. Nothing. Though you are burned at the stake for the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you draw your last breath, not loving the church. You got nothing. Nothing. So many attributes of love that are rolled out there, patient and kind and confident and humble and good and not easily provoked. It's amazing. If you read down in those scriptures, you'll find about the source of every single church problem we have. And not just us, all of them. We get provoked, we get offended, we don't want to be patient, we don't want to be kind, we want to go do this, we want to go do that. And every single one of these church problems are fixed if we love each other enough. Why do you stick it in there with your spouse when they make you mad? Because you love them. Why do you stick with it with your children when they drive you crazy and you told them 10,000 times and they do it again? Because you love them. Why do you go and do things for your friends that you don't do for perfect strangers? Because you love them. And that has to be in a church. He says we are to desire spiritual gifts, but at the same time we have to remember their purpose. Their purpose is to edify, to benefit, to, to unify the church, which means that we cannot seek after them for the wrong reason. There's a lot of times people do They want to be used in the gifts for all the wrong reasons. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Peter 4 and 10, he says, as every man hath received the gift, the same gifts of the Spirit, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. How, how do we know if our reasons are right? You know, I know not everybody, you know, second guesses themselves maybe as much as I do. Yeah, there's times that I want to make sure my motivations are right about this. Because when you can find yourself doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, and, and I don't want to do that. You know, I want to make sure that, you know, and, and the best example I come up with is 
because y'all heard me say this for years, I want so desperately to go on mission trips and drive me up the wall. I've been wanting to go for, for most of my lifetime, and I still ain't made it to a single one. If the Lord tarries and Lord will, the days will come, but it hasn't happened yet. But there's been times that, that, that I've had to, to, to ask God to, to check my spirit because, because I want to do it for the right reason. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking a vacation to Germany. There's nothing wrong with, if you've got the money, taking a vacation to the other side of the world to see those wonderful things. But I don't want to get up here and tell you I want to go to a mission trip just because I want to go on a nice vacation. Just because I want to go see some pretty mountain or some river or some lake that I've never seen before. You know, if you get to go see those things by your own mission trip, that's fine. But, but I want to make sure my reasons are right. Because God's not going to use the Bible just to, to go on vacation. I'm sure he could. But it, it's different. I want to do something for the kingdom of God. I want to know that my motivations are right. So how do we know that our reasons are right? Is it for the purpose of love? How do you know that? Because that sounds awful nice and fluffy, right? First John chapter 3. The love test. Nobody knows a lot of black John, right? A lot of people like to do it. First John chapter 3 and verse 14. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abideth in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives. I'm not, I'm not just talking about being crucified on the cross. I'm not going to say the Lord's not going to call somebody to do that. There are more ways than somebody nailing us to a tree that we lay down our life for our brothers. What is it, First John? John. When I want God to use me against the Spirit, when I want to do something great for the kingdom of God, why do I want it? What do I want Do I want it for my brother? Or do I want it for me? See, a lot of times we pray the gifts of the Spirit to move. Because we need a word. We need some prophecy. We need some healing. We need some miracles. And there's nothing wrong for praying for those things from God. I wonder what would happen in the church. There's times when you desperately need a healing. You said, Lord, I, I want you to move for my brother. I want you to move from my sister. Lord, I need a word from you, God, but I'm asking you, my sister needs a word more than me. You see, God had to check me not too long ago. I was praying, and you've heard me say this before, that there's some things that are kind of routine in my prayers. And, and I pray for my church, and I pray for my family, and you know, sometimes your list gets long, and sometimes you're, you're running short on time, and got to figure out exactly what I'm going to pray for this time before I got to put that off to the next prayer opportunity. 
I would feel like praying for the church and praying for my family were separate things. The Lord had to help me realize what I should realize. So if I pray for the church, I'm in the church. If I pray for healing in the church, healing comes down to my family too. If I pray for the gifts of the Spirit to move for my brother, the day's going to come when I need word, when my brother's going to be sitting at his pew saying, Brother Paul, he needs something tonight. God knows what I need, and He knows what you need. He put every one of us exactly where He wants us, but we've got to get to the place that we lay down our lives for the church. When we spend more airtime in heaven praying for our brothers and our sisters than we do on else our body and my bills that are not paid and my car that is broken down. I'm not making light of those things. You've got needs, I've got needs. We all pray for them. But we've also got to get to the place. We only get around to thinking of ourselves. After we've exhausted ourselves, they are all down for each other. John 13 and 34 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. The Lord said, I'm going to show you how it's done. Now I want you to do it. He came to this world and deserved everything and left with nothing. Served all honor and power and glory, and he went out of this place rejected, and he had their back. His, his closest friends turned their backs on him. But he did it all for you and I. He laid it all down so that we could have salvation. And he says, I want you to do the same. He says, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples. If you have love, we'll do nothing. What's first on my mind? Is it the church or is it me? What needs at the top of my list? Is it my brothers or is it mine? Why am I seeking for God to move? Is it because I want somebody to think something of me? Is it because I want somebody to think I'm a good preacher? Is it because I want somebody to think I'm a prayer warrior? Or do I not care what I am? I just want my brother to be blessed tonight. I just want that soul to be filled with the Holy Ghost. I just want my backslidden sister to come walking down that aisle and repent at an altar. Yeah. Lay down your life yes. in the church. And God will move in ways that we have yet to understand. We just stand all across this place. If you want to find a place and pray, then find a place at an altar at your pew. But let's touch heaven. Let's touch heaven for the church and for 